0: Welcome back to The Reeducation. Today's show is about the late Christopher Hitchens, who was both a friend and mentor to me and my guest, Michael Moynihan, co host of the Fifth Column podcast. Because the works and life of this great man would cover far more than one podcast, and I imagine that we will be getting back into Christopher Hitchens in future pods. Today's monologue is limited to Christopher's political evolution in the 1990s through 9-11 to become the most eloquent advocate for the liberation of Iraq. Stick around. This is a good one.
1: I've I've been on the Jon Stewart show. I've been on your show. I've seen you make about five George Bush IQ jokes per night. There's no one I know who can't do it. You know what I think? This is now the joke that stupid people laugh at. It's a joke that any dumb person can laugh at because they, they think they're, they're smarter, they, they could prove they're smarter than the president, like the people who make booing and mooing noises in your audience. But, but sometimes a cig- None of whom, but, none of whom, but none but of whom some, are smarter than the president. But sometimes I a cigar is really a cigar.
0: That was Hitch on Bill Maher's program in 2006, flipping off his audience, biting the hands of a few late night hosts, who had fed him in the 2000s. Now, to Marr's credit, Hitch was invited back many times after that. Now, I play this clip because it demonstrates, on the one hand, how Hitchens did not mind articulating unpopular arguments, even in the teeth of crowds who were booing him, or as he would say in other settings, making mewing animal noises. It also shows how Hitchens, in those days, was a one-issue voter. He really didn't care about his many disagreements with George W. Bush, You know, who he chastised in the 2000 campaign as somebody who couldn't pronounce the word nuclear and so forth. Because George W. Bush and Christopher Hitchens agreed on one non-negotiable thing, and that was the threat posed by what Hitch called fascism with an Islamic face. This was the great cause for Christopher Hitchens in the years after 9-11. Here he is in 2010 articulating his reaction to the attacks of that day.
1: I, I realized I couldn't bear... Any argument that made the assumption that the United States had invited or, let alone deserved, this atrocity. And I also realized that as well as involving the things that I like or love, it also very much conscripted in one thing all the things that I hate.
0: So, those things that Hitchens hated that became, as he said, conscripted in one event, you know, he listed off several things in that interview anti Jewish paranoia, death cult, worship of a supreme leader, theocracy. But really, it comes down to two of Christopher's enduring enmities throughout his life, organized religion and tyranny, which Hitch would argue, pretty eloquently, I might add, and persuasively, were impossibly intertwined. That is, religion and tyranny go together because they have to. Okay. Disagree in some ways, in a lot of ways with that, but that was Hitchen's main argument. So it's important here to stipulate that secularism democracy, personal freedom. These are long-standing concerns for Christopher Hitchens. He opposed segments of the left that apologized for the fanatics that hunted his friend Salman Rushdie and eventually murdered his translators based on a fatwa from 1988. Hitchens, of course, offered Rushdie his spacious apartment in Washington as a place to hide out after that Iranian fatwa was issued. Listen to my episode on Iran's war on cultural freedom for more on this. So with that in mind, it's wrong to say that Hitch had an epiphany on September 11th. Rather, it was the horror of that day that confirmed his earlier beliefs and led him to break with those on his own side that would not see the minions of jihad for the fascist empire builders that they were. And this is the meat of today's monologue. It is Christopher Hitchens' break with the left. So let's start with a little level setting. I will not devote much time in this monologue to Hitchens' withering critique of Bill and Hillary Clinton, in large part because Bill and Hillary Clinton are not really figures of the left. They were best known for their triangulation approach to governance. But anyway, Hitchens' critiques began in 1992 during the campaign when he was disgusted to learn that Clinton had flown back to Arkansas to oversee the execution of a prisoner named Ricky Ray Rector that as a man who had blown off his frontal cortex, literally self-lobotomizing himself. And Hitch believed that this was not only cruel, but it was also pandering and cruel. And he never really forgave Bill Clinton for it. And this feud with the Clintons culminated, you could say, in his testimony against an ex-friend, White House advisor Sidney Blumenthal, who himself had spread nasty stories about Monica Lewinsky during Clinton's impeachment ordeal. Hitch sort of blew the whistle on that as well. So for more on this... Read Christopher's short but lacerating book, No One Left to Lie to. Highly recommend it. Okay, so that's the sort of background in the 90s with the Clintons and Hitchens. I really want to focus, though, on Hitch's membership in what might be called the anti-imperialist left. So to demonstrate this, we have to go back to, let's start with 1998. And and this is the height of this drama over Lewinsky as al-Qaeda's forces were gathering against America. These are the remains of the El Shifa factory in Khartoum targeted by cruise missiles, and where, according to the White House, deadly chemicals were made for use with nerve gas. But it's also where engineer Tom Carnaffin worked for four and a half years.
1: The computers, I sorted the shipping of those out to them. Um, Had meals in the factory, um, had tea in the factory, visited it with the people, with the Babwood family and with the managers from the factory. Took photographs in the factory. There was never any restrictions in that sort of way.
0: The Sudanese government have been quick to point out that among the rubble are ordinary medicine bottles. They claim this was just a children's pharmaceutical company and not a chemical weapons site. So that was a report from August 23rd, 1998, right after the bombing of the Al-Shifa pharmaceutical factory outside of Khartoum. Even then, the official story was falling apart. Al-Shifa was hit along with two targets in Afghanistan and Pakistan in what was known in the 1990s as cruise missile diplomacy. These three targets, allegedly affiliated with al-Qaeda, were destroyed in response to al-Qaeda's own simultaneous explosions of two U.S. embassies in Tanzania and Kenya that year. The Clinton administration claimed that al-Shifa was manufacturing VX gas and was in league with al-Qaeda, and this was, at least most of that, was not true. It's unclear about the ownership of the factory and its ties to Osama bin Laden, but certainly there's little evidence to suggest they were manufacturing VX gas. And later on, U.S. government pretty much admitted that. Anyway, one of the first journalists to call bullshit was Christopher Hitchens. He argued over the course of three columns in The Nation, or, and also, I think, writing in Vanity Fair, that the strike on Al-Shifa was because Clinton needed to look, quote, presidential, end quote, as Monica Lewinsky returned to Ken Starr's grand jury. Now, I love this bit from Hitchens' October 6th column in The Nation. I want to, quote, read this here, quote, no bipartisan contrition is likely to be offered to the starving Sudanese unmentioned on the prayer breakfast circuit this is why i agree with those who say that we must put monica behind us and stop our comic obsession with sex or quote unquote sex as the president's filthy-minded and incompetent lawyers are still compelled for perjurious reasons to call it in their briefings end of parentheses it's not the cigar stupid it's the cruise missiles launched to cover the shame. End of quote. So Hitch wrote that for his Minority Report column, which he had at the Nation magazine for 20 years. And he would also, in this period, occasionally write for Covert Action Quarterly, which is the successor publication to Spy, And that publication became infamous in the 1970s for disclosing the identities of CIA officers working overseas. The Quarterly ran a column called, quote, Naming Names, end quote, until 1982 when Congress passed the Intelligence Identities Protection Act that made this practice illegal, at least for, you know, to publish these identities. Anyway, both publications were founded by Philip Agee, a CIA turncoat who waged a political war against the CIA until he died in 2008 from a hospital bed in Havana, Cuba. Agee is the Phil in this clip that Hitch says he called in Amber.
1: All right, uh, let's see, I want to increase the tempo of giving a little, um, if what I've just said doesn't move you or stir you. How much would you give to see Barbara Bush in the dock? Or, okay, or any member of the Bush family. Um, I'm offering you Barbara. Um, I had to review her ghastly book the other day. You can always do something, you know, however small. I had to review this damn book for a stupid tabloid, reading through, and she said that Philip Agee had given away the name of an American agent in Athens who'd later been assassinated and was morally responsible for this man's murder. And the introduction says that George Bush read every word of the book to protect her from uh, having made any mistakes or committed any uh, errors of fact. So I thought, huh. I rang Phil in Hamburg. I said, I think you ought to sue her.
0: Now, isn't that something? Anyway, AG ended up winning that lawsuit. But it's less of a vindication the Hitch might make it seem. In 1998, it is true that Barbara Bush was compelled by this sort of settlement with Ag's lawyers to write him a letter acknowledging that Ag did not reveal the CIA station chief's name in his book Inside the Company. The paperback version of her memoir attributes the unmasking of Richard Welch to CounterSpy magazine, a magazine that Ag helped found in 1975. Another interesting kind of footnote to all of this is that when Washington became obsessed with the story of who leaked Valerie Plame, a CIA officer's name. You know, in the aftermath of the Iraq war and there was a longstanding investigation into Scooter Libby, who was the national security advisor to Dick Cheney, Hitch made the argument that the true left wing position, based on his time writing for Counterintelligence Quarterly, was to oppose the idea that it's illegal to name CIA officers overseas. I, again, I could argue this maybe both ways. It depends on the context. But AG did do a lot of unnecessary damage, I think, to the CIA in the middle of the Cold War. Anyway, I bring up this long-forgotten fundraiser for a treacherous relic of the Cold War because it shows that even in 1995, Hitch saw himself as an opponent of American empire. So much so that at this fundraiser, he had the honor of introducing one of the most consequential foes of American empire in the last 50 years, Noam Chomsky, another contributor at the time to Covert Action Quarterly.
1: Noam has been the victim. He's not himself a victim of self-pity in any way and wouldn't say this for himself, but I can tell you, as someone who's followed it, that he's been the victim of a really unprecedented campaign of calumny and defamation. And a parallel campaign to silence and exclude and marginalize his contributions. His books go unreviewed in the major outlets. His letters, often in, written in defense against appalling libels, are often unpublished or uh, published in a mutilated form. I think he's born under, born up under this with tremendous dignity and bearing and, and address.
0: Now, again, that was 1995. The friendship between Noam Chomsky and Christopher Hitchens would not survive 9-11. So let's start with Chomsky. For my listeners who don't know, Chomsky began his intellectual life as a linguist and philosopher. And I'd say at least in terms of linguistics, my sister, by the way, is a linguist. He revolutionized the field. And he really did kind of achieve, you know, rightful academic fame. And, you know, when he has his tenure at MIT in the 1960s, he begins to become something of a social critic. This is brought out in large part, I think, because of the Vietnam War. So here he is in 1969 on firing line with the great William F. Buckley, explaining that America after World War II had become a vast global empire.
1: Don't forget that with the Second World War, America's imperial interests expanded enormously. I mean, prior to the Second World War, we were sort of a marginal imperialist power, except for the Monroe Doctrine. But since the Second World War, we became the world's major imperialist power. And Vietnam is simply one piece of an attempt to construct a very large integrated world system of which Greece was another.
0: Okay, so Chomsky has remained an opponent of American empire to this day. So it's not surprising that on September 12th, 2001, Chomsky's first public thoughts on the terror of that day was to compare it to past American crimes in the third world. Quote, the September 11 attacks were major atrocity. In terms of numbers of victims, they do not reach the level of many others. For example, Clinton's bombing of the Sudan with no credible pretext, destroying half its pharmaceutical supplies and probably killing tens of thousands of people. No one knows because the U.S. blocked an inquiry at the U.N. and no one cares to pursue it. Not to speak of much worse cases, which easily come to mind. But that this was a horrendous crime is not in doubt. End quote. Okay, that was the first paragraph of a sort of quick, you know, thoughts on the September 11 attacks that Chomsky issued on September 12th. That quote was from Counterpunch, an online magazine founded by another Hitchens ex-friend, Alexander Coburn. Okay, so I say, Chomsky, in this piece that he writes, kind of goes on to correctly predict, in my view, the ramifications of the 9-11 attacks on civil liberties. He notes that working people were the primary victims. That's, you know, not entirely true. And he worries for the fate of the Palestinians. And he ends his brief column with a plea to understand why the perpetrators did what they did. And I quote... As to how to react, we have a choice. We can express justified horror, we can seek to understand what may have led to the crimes, which means making an effort to enter the minds of the likely perpetrators. End of quote. Now before I get to Hitch, I should say that this last line of Chomsky's was not in and of itself all that extraordinary. After 9-11, one could not escape a genre of commentary that kept asking Why do they hate us? Blah, 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 blah. But Chomsky here is looking to reaffirm his priors. His recommendation for understanding the root cause of 9-11 is to read Robert Fisk's account of American-Israeli brutality in Lebanon. In other words, we had it coming. And Hitch was having none of it. So here he is in The Nation in his first column. And I want to read this. This is a fairly lengthy excerpt, so just bear with me, but it's, it's, it's worth hearing all of this. Okay, quote, With all due thanks to these worthy comrades, I know already that the people of Palestine and Iraq are victims of a depraved and callous Western statecraft, and I think I can claim to have been among the first to point out that Clinton's rocketing of Khartoum, supported by most liberals, was a gross war crime, which would have certainly entitled the Sudanese government to mount reprisals under international law. Indeed, the sight of Clintonoids on TV applauding the bounce in the polls achieved by their man that day was even more repulsive than the sight of destitute refugee children making a wretched holiday over the nightmare on Chambers Street. But there is no sense in which the events of September 11 can be held to constitute such a reprisal, either legally or morally. Then he goes on to say, and I'm quoting here again, the bombers of Manhattan represent fascism with an Islamic face. There's that phrase again. And there's no point in any euphemism about it. What they abominate about the West to put it in a phrase, is not what Western liberals don't like and can't defend about their own system, but what they do like about it and must defend. It's emancipated women, it's scientific inquiry, it's separation of religion from the state. Loose talk about chickens coming home to roost is the moral equivalent of the hateful garbage emitted by Falwell and Robertson and exhibits about the same intellectual content. Indiscriminate murder is not a judgment even obliquely, on the victims or their way of life or ours. Any decent and concerned reader of this magazine could have been on those planes or in one of those buildings. Yes, even the Pentagon, end of quote. Okay, so Hitch and Chomsky would go back and forth for a few more rounds. I will spare all of the details, but leave it at this line, a Hitchens rejoinder, which gets at his larger problem with the anti-imperialist left, and that's why I'm quoting it here. All right. If there is now an international intervention, whether intelligent and humane or brutal and stupid against the Taliban, some people will take to the streets or at least mount some candle-in-the-wind or strawberry fields peace vigil. They did not take to the streets or even go moist and musical when the administration supported the Taliban, but that was surely just as much an intervention, an intervention, moreover, that could not even pretend to be humane or democratic. I had the same concern about those who did not object when the United States safeguarded Milosevic, but did protest when it finally turned against him. Am I supposed not to notice that these two groups of anti-interventionists are in fact the same people? End of quote. Now, I should note that Hitchens and Chomsky never spoke again. There's a story that I think Hitchens wrote a letter to Chomsky and Chomsky wouldn't send it back, return to sender. There's a clip, which I'm not going to play, of Chomsky saying that Hitchens is just now, you know, as this religion, his real religion is for, you know, state empire and that kind of thing. Anyway, too bad. But just noting that this break with Chomsky really is a metaphor for Hitchens' kind of break with the anti-imperialist left. All right. Now, I should also say in this period is that that's when I got to know Christopher Hitchens. I was the State Department correspondent for UPI, and I just began writing for the New Republic. In September of 2002, I published my first piece for the New Republic called Intelligence Test on the bureaucratic war between the Pentagon's neoconservatives and the CIA and State Department's realist over-war planning in Iraq. Look it up. It's a very good piece. I think it still holds up to this day 20 years later. And at a party at my editor's apartment, Hitch told me he had read it and he admired it, and we became fast friends. We both knew and admired Ahmed Chalabi, the head of the Iraqi National Congress, and we both knew and liked the Iraqi Kurds that used the calm purchased in the 1990s by a U.S.-led no-fly zone to begin building a more democratic stateland in northern Iraq. Anyway, here is Hitch in 2002 on Charlie Rose before the Iraq war, explaining why he favored an intervention and also, I think, correctly predicting what the collapse of Saddam's regime would entail.
1: Uh, There's an irony here, if I can draw attention to one, though. A lot of people, I think in America as well as in the region, believe the United States is all-powerful. It's a common myth, as you know, throughout the Middle East. The United States is behind everything, and I'm afraid... The idea of omnipotence has infected some of our policy intellectuals too, and some of the people in the administration. They think what we say goes. The fact is, the options are very limited at the moment in Iraq. Another disagreement with what David and what Michael Wilson said: the the collapse, the, the implosion of the Saddam Hussein regime is coming anyway. It's coming like Christmas. We are going very soon to be faced, whatever we do, with all the ghastly consequences of a post-Saddam Iraq, which will include, indeed, Sunni Shia. Rivalry, other regional rivalries, the possible intervention of um, neighboring countries, a revenge, killing, um, innumerable unpleasant possibilities. But they do include also the possibility I just mentioned, that of a more democratic and pluralist Iraq, as exemplified in the areas that are not run by Saddam Hussein. Now, I play this
0: because for Hitchens, this is sort of, this is something new. I mean, you should have heard him at the outset or the prelude to the first Gulf War. He was very much of an opponent of it. And as established before, until now, Hitchens, you know, was, he was an anti-imperialist. He loathed Henry Kissinger, writing a book-length argument for why he should be tried for war crimes. He opposed the first Gulf War he wrote for a Quarterly, founded by Philip Agee. But here he was making the case for a war that many of his former comrades believed was an act of naked American imperialism. Well, needless to say, that is not how Hitch saw it. He believed that socialists had an obligation to support what he called the war for Iraq. He was always in this respect an internationalist, and he saw his support for the Iraq war as the sort of logical outcome or the logical extension of his broader sort of internationalist socialist position. And to his credit, when the war for Iraq began going badly, Hitch never really gave up on the cause. And here he is in 2005. And believe me, the war was going very badly in 2005 at a famous debate in New York City with George Galloway, who was then a member of the British Parliament, and a fairly nasty one at that. Here is Hitch defending the honor of Iraq's elected Kurdish President, Jalal Talibani.
1: Iraq is not being occupied by President Talibani. President Talibani was born there. He's had to move a few times. He's seen his villages destroyed and his home bombed and his family shot at and murdered and so on. He's not occupying Iraq. President Talibani is, in fact, the leader of the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan, which is the corresponding member organization of the Socialist International. It is the Iraqi member party of the Socialist International. The Iraqi Communist Party, a party with a great record of bad politics but good civil struggle in Iraq and with great organization among the women and trade unionists and journalists and workers of the country, has, of course, been a member uh, uh, already of the provisional government and is campaigning enthusiastically in the elections. There are probably some people among you here who fancy yourself as having leftist revolutionary credentials. In fact, I can tell that you do from the zoo noises you make. And the the scars you can demonstrate from your long underground twilight struggle against Dick Cheney. But while you're masturbating in that manner, the Iraqi secular left, the socialist and communist movements, the workers' movement, the trade unions, are fighting for their lives against the most vicious and indiscriminate form of fascist violence that any country in the region has seen for a very long time.
0: Now, I love that. You know, this debate was epic. I was not in New York for it, but uh, before it began, I know that Hitch and one of his students handed out leaflets to the audience that contained quotations from Galloway speaking in Damascus and praising suicide bomber operations against the interim government in Baghdad. It was just terrific. So before I wrap things up, I want to note that Hitch's support for the war did not mean that he was not a journalist covering it. He never became an apologist. He wrote very critically about the failures to rebuild Iraq's power grid. He chastised the military, the administration for the treatment of prisoners at Abu Ghraib, and he opposed torture, famously subjecting himself to waterboarding for a Vanity Fair story in 2008, which in turn sort of got Eric Holder, who became the attorney general for Barack Obama, to begin thinking about waterboarding and wanting to sort of look into it as when he became attorney general. So it's an interesting kind of circle there. All right. Anyway, but nonetheless, Hitch never apologized like many initial supporters of the Iraq war for his support for ending Saddam Hussein's tyranny. And this is because he hated tyranny. Anyway, so it's nearly 20 years since the U.S. led a coalition to end Saddam Hussein's regime. And I have to say that by Hitch's own measure, I don't believe that the war was a failure. Iraq has had, almost miraculously, successive elections since 2005, the year of that debate with Galloway. By the way, is the same year, or rather a year after the 2004 presidential election, where there was a clear disagreement between John Kerry, the Democratic nominee, who said that he would not go forward with the elections, and George W. Bush, who clearly supported them. Since then, Iraq has endured two gruesome Sunni jihadist insurgencies, and as well as the vicious reprisals from Iranian-backed death squads. I agree with Christopher Hitchens that much of this violence was inevitable once Saddam's regime collapsed. But the point is that the state... And constitution that American arms made possible survived Iraq is of course corrupt today. its courts are not independent. it has a long way to go. But it is in a better place than it was twenty years ago, and this is particularly true, I think, in northern Iraq in the Kurdish regions and that's a testament first and foremost to many Iraqis who sacrificed for their new nation. It's also a testament to the determination and courage of Americans and their allies who fought in the war. But I think we should also say that it's a testament to the moral clarity of writers like Christopher Hitchens. I still miss him.
2: Oh, I'm sailing away My own true love I'm sailing away In the morning Is there something I can send you From
0: across the sea? From the place that I'll be landing.
2: No, there's nothing you can send me, my own true love. There's nothing I'm wishing to be owning. Just to carry yourself back to me unspoiled i across that lonesome ocean.
0: I I... Welcome back to The reeducation, everybody. We've got a return guest, Michael Moynihan, a fan favorite. And the topic today is Christopher Hitchens. And I want to just set this up because... Both Christopher and I had the great privilege of having a kind of friendship mentorship with Christopher Hitchens in, during the last decade of his life with myself in the 2002-2003 period, and I think with Michael Moynihan, we would say, in those last years that Christopher had with us. So that is why I have him on today to talk about the great man, the legacy we often quote him on the show— but I wanted to have a conversation about what he was like and what it was like to know him. So thank you so much for coming on, Michael. Thank you, Eli. Am I the first repeat guest? No. Would I be the... Went, oh, Ari was... Lamb is a repeat guest. We also had an Andy McCarthy as a repeat. But you're, you know, one, right, you're in the, really if you think about it, because you were in one of. the... In my mind, I'm the first. Repeat in the pilot, <laughs> you were with me. Yes, so this was the I first was a three time guest. So there you that go. That
2: is right. When this becomes the biggest show to ever be broadcast on the internet. The DVDs or whatever the future version of that will be, we'll have the pilot. Yeah, and it will be me. And we were talking about God knows what. I don't even remember. But um, yeah, it was something. I mean, I showed up today and said, "Eli, what are we talking yeah, exactly. about?" Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because I go. feel that it's just like most of the conversations we have on the phone. It's always it's always very good.
0: Everybody. So <laughs> so let's let's talk about Christopher for just a second here, yes. um, or more than a second. That's the show. What was it like to kind of you know have that friendship? Especially you know, it was like a whirlwind, right? I mean.
2: Yeah. You know this. There's a little fact here that I'm not sure that you're aware of. I might have pointed this out to you one time, but I met you and Christopher Hitchens on the same night.
0: Oh, I did not know did that. Not, did you not know no. that? No.
2: Yes. It was at a – somebody's house during the midterms in 2006, I guess. I bet that it was two dynamic um, lovers. I, it might have been, been Rich Miniter. Oh, it I mean, might have been Rich remember. Miniter. You're right. I, that's yeah, right. Yeah, you somebody interviewed who I've, him. I've forgotten about. Yes. But I met Christopher there, and I had been reading him since college. Yeah. Because I had a roommate and a friend who subscribed to The Nation, and I was like, what is this nonsense? And Christopher I, I liked in the way that I liked, kind of, kind of liked his old friend, his ex-friend, to use the Norman Porter's face uh, what's his name Alexander Coburn great writers but I just disagreed with them and I disagree with Christopher on a lot but when I met him that evening I was it was the only time I mean look we're writers we meet a lot of people that we grew up reading we meet a lot of people whose books we've read and have a lot of respect for Chris was the first one I ever met where I was actually kind of taken aback yeah I walked in and I said oh my god I've been living I was living in Sweden at the time and I came to D.C., and that was me being pulled back to the United States at that point. And it was an interesting time, too, because Iraq and the Iraq War was making living in Sweden very difficult, primarily because if you wrote about it from any perspective other than the accepted Swedish one, which would be kind of a extreme left-wing perspective. And being American, too, is rather difficult, too, because you were asked to, to explain every action of the American government. Then you then I come back to the to the U.S., and I meet Christopher Hitchens. I met and, and I met you outside on the deck.
0: That's right. That evening,
2: and I believe I got stoned with you. <laughs> <laughs> is that okay to say now? It's fine. That you're I mean, you're self-employed. Now, you know, who, you're self-employed. It's, it's Fine. It's everywhere. Uh, yeah. It is what it is. It is what it is, it, it is. It's basically legal everywhere. Pretty much. And yeah. at that point, it was not. You were you were probably a felon at that point. But uh, <laughs> I met you. I met you that evening. I met Christopher that evening, and I was kind of blown away by it. And I emailed him when I got back to Sweden many months later, and he remembered. And remembered and cited something that I'd said to him. And I'd asked him if I could republish something of his in Swedish. Could I translate it and republish it in Swedish? And he said, of course, go ahead. And that was the kind of first interactions that I had with him. And I thought the whole thing was so fantastic. I can't believe this, this is the, one of my favorite writers. Somebody who had changed my mind on so many things. That's right. Another write writer is in change your mind. I mean, writers inform the way you think about things over time, right? I've read the, the accumulation of things that I've read about Say the Cold War, I can go back and say, you know, Robert Conquest kind of really informed the way. Well, Robert, Robert it's your funny. Mind. We should
0: linger on Robert Conquest yes. because that guy is a huge influence on Hitchens.
2: Huge. They were very close friends. They disagreed on a lot of things, and you know, Conquers, as he was as he was called by by that crew, lived until he was almost a hundred, and lived down the street from from where Christopher's in laws lived in in Atherton in, in Palo Alto, in right. California. And so, yeah, he was a. You, part of that universe and
0: yeah, the, universe but I, what universe. i was going to say is that the there was i forget the name it was okay. I think the, the sort of coalition against bullshit it was the 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 lunch group the lunch group right yes. and the idea was Kings, kingsley Amos. Right? And yeah yeah and it yeah. was the and it was the idea was that like it was it was really kind of carrying on if you want to sort of say the thread of orwell which was like it's we are we are just for calling out the truth and we're against yeah. the spin from wherever it comes and that is, I think- And also
2: being kind of an asshole for the sake of being an sure, asshole. that I mean, too. That's also important that's a big these part. <laughs> guys. Because I mean, remember in the time, and this is the thing about Christopher, when you have somebody who's like a polymath in the way that Christopher was, that these kind of things are not linear. We're going to jump around a little bit. I have to just say that because you can't help but do that with all these things. And we should just say really quickly for the, for
0: the listener, Robert Conquest is the kind of great historian of the Soviet Union. The dean of
2: Sovietologists, Yeah. But that group of people, keep in mind that Kingsley Amos, to, to the asshole point and just being difficult, he, I think it, was, it grew out of those conversations at lunch, went and wrote something for the Daily Telegraph, defending the Vietnam War, which was an unpopular position <laughs> at the time, not taken by by many people. Not taken by
0: Hitchens, who hated the Vietnam War. Oh my God, no, 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 no. That was
2: radicalizing for him. Right.
0: Too. But this gets to like the first theme I want to talk about, which is... It goes back to that kind of often overrated quote from Orwell the, the most the striking thing is to say it's to see what's right in front of your nose. And, in front of your nose, yeah. But there is something to that if you write for a living, that it's yeah. very easy to get caught into the old habits of your old arguments and to not see sure. what is right in front of you or to not, or to, you know, because it's inconvenient to say some certain things. And that was really one of Hitch's, one of his many great gifts was his ability to kind of in the moment call bullshit and to just tell you what is true that in a way that everybody can grasp it.
2: And also to reassess the things that you've you've gotten wrong. And yes. I think that that one of the best interviews and I recommend people listen to because I've never seen a lion tamed like this, but is Jeremy Paxman, the famous BBC interviewer who's notorious for being tough and being hard and you know tearing people apart and you see Christopher turn him into this kind of little pussycat and he's smiling the whole time every time there's this fantastic you know phrasing or locution he just you see Paxman cuts to him being beaming but there's a moment in it when he asks him do you ever regret any of the targets that you you and, and and of course it always gets to mother teresa yeah and of course Christopher's thing is you know no I, I oftentimes don't I, I regret not going hard enough and then I regret things that I didn't take and that's actually really important to go, go it's very fun for people to say do you go back and look at these you know ideas that you had decisions that you made causes that you supported and say i was wrong about them but it's very important also to go back and say these are the ones i ignored maybe for ideological reasons and he goes back in that interview and says that i really should have gone harder on robert mugabe and zanu pf in south africa because he says and this is the phrase which is very overused these days is i was desperate to see the end of white supremacy in South Africa which he was and the same thing is true in what was Rhodesia and became Zimbabwe and that is a really interesting thing like you know you see this in his memoir too of going back and looking and I, I've said this I've never I think I've ever said this publicly but I asked him one time about Israel Palestine because it was an issue that I, I think we probably disagreed on more than any other though we didn't talk about it very much in one time I did ask him about that and I said look with the ideas that came to you, not came to you, but kind of crystallized for you after 9-11, and, you know, you writing about Hezbollah, I remember him talking to me about this book that I had to read by a Boston Globe correspondent with a Greek last name. Oh, yeah, called, yeah, 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 uh, yeah. I know. A Pleasure to Die, I believe. Yeah, the yeah, the that's book, Thianus, like that. Um Theonus, exactly. Christopher thought it was a fantastic book. Yeah. And you can go and find these clips of Christopher Talking on Bill Maher, actually the one with most deaf Mr. Deaf oh, well. and 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 Salman Rushdie talking about a rally he a Hezbollah rally he went to in Lebanon, and I said to him like all this stuff about jihadism, about you know his phrasing of Islamofascism, which is one of those things like it's kind of like the word woke that it's been taken over by people you don't really like, so sure. you tend to abandon it. But what does that do when you see that in two thousand five? Ariel Sharon, which somebody Christopher did not have a lot of respect for, Sabra and Shatila and all this stuff, he's a butcher and all that stuff you'd expect, pulls out of Gaza unilaterally. In 2006, they have an election, and that's the one election, one time kind of thing. And, you know, it's Hamas. It's like, well, what what about that now? And I remember the phrase when he said, well, on this issue, my baggage has shifted a little. Right. <laughs> that was it. Well, he wrote that famous. And that he it. kind of and wrote was, a thing about his, not, his yeah. good
0: friend, Edward Said. Yes. I mean, there's a little bit of background here. Yes. Edward Said and Christopher Hitchens were the debate partners against Leon Weaseltier and Bernard Lewis That's in right. the famous town hall debate. I think it's 85. I mean, and it was it was ostensibly about the percent like, you know, the media portrayal of the Middle East conflict, but it was about so much more. Because, and it was, and and Hitchens and Saeed won. It was basically, they were the anti-Israel side at the time. Yeah. And at the end of his life, he sort of had a, he, he wrote his disagreements with, with Edward.
2: Yeah. And it made very, ma- it made people very angry. Yep. Because Saeed was very sick at the time, I think.
0: Yes. And
2: he attacked him pretty ruthlessly. But I mean, Christopher, I think, felt pretty ganged up on at that point. You know, friendships with Gore Vidal that went by the wayside, friendships well, uh, with no Christopher
0: Chomsky. Christopher gave as good as he got on that. Oh, no, no, on no for all sure. Of but I know what you mean. Studs, Turkels, another yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. I right. mean,
2: all of these things. But at the same time is that when they all descend upon you at one time and they're all on the wrong side of an issue. And it's not about Iraq, by the way. This this is predates Iraq. This is about 9-11. It is. The Chomsky stuff happens about 9-11 and about Afghanistan. And, you know, when all of that happens, you come out punching and fighting everybody. And this is a man who enjoyed doing that and never backed down from it. I'm I'm a little softer than that and try to find some common ground sometimes. But Christopher never did that. And uh, yeah, on the Said thing, I think there was a reassessment in his mind. I think it was a book, I think the guy was named Edward Irvin, is that correct? Who wrote a book about Ori- Orientalists and about Said's book Ori- Orientalism, right? I think it was the right. name of the book. Yeah, Orientalism, which is, you know, every undergraduate read saying that this is a lot of bullshit actually. And I think Christopher started taking that position too. So that, that frayed a lot of old friendships, but look, I mean, you, if you're in the game of ideological combat, you're going to lose friends after an event like 9-11. Yeah. Cause that's, that's, that's a sort of, mir steht, as the East Germans would say, you know, where, wh- whose side are you on? Where do you stand? And that was kind of it. Like, where do you stand? I mean, Christopher said, you know in 2004 i believe at i think it was in the nation when they asked who you're voting for and he said he was voting for george w bush and said i'm a one i'm a single issue voter i think it was slate. and it was, it was it was slate maybe it was yeah. Slate, yeah i'm a single issue voter on on the issue of 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 jihadism and terrorism which would be interesting when people say, what the, the most annoying thing in the world, what would Chris Viggen say about this? And they're always wrong. I mean, because there's always a paper trail of what Chris would say so we about, should, have these things. I want to play but, that yeah, game I mean, the, now is,
0: because it's actually interesting about in the context of 2016. Yeah. It's harder well, than you I think. would just
2: say, yeah, I would say in G, like jihadism, the interesting thing about that is how it's an issue that's kind of been forgotten about. Republicans and conservatives don't talk about Islam anymore. They used to do that all the time. It used to be the, the sort of you know, very radical Frank Gaffney, Robert Spencer types who were just, uh, you know, kind of loons. And then there were some sensible people about it. But it's just not an issue really that people talk about anymore. And I wonder what that would do for Christopher these days. But by the way, he, there, there would be one, I will say one thing before you ask any questions about it, what would you say. I think he would be very disappointed about the non-reaction to the attempted murder of Salman Rushdie. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, it's, it's a non-reaction. It's It's astonishing to me.
0: I agree. I think it would have broken his heart in some ways because I think he he got a lot. I mean, I mean Christopher harbored Salman Rushdie literally yeah. in his apartment, which we've been to many times in in DuPont Circle. And the yeah. and he was, you know, I think probably his most outspoken, at least in the in the in the Republic of Letters, is the most outspoken defender. For sure. There is a famous story. I love this story of Christopher. It's sort of it's like we're swapping old Hinton stories here. Where an old, I guess you could say, you know, an old friend who he'd sort of mentored another writer from the 90s when he was more on the left and they were meeting at a bar in Adams Morgan and a Cat Stevens song comes on and Hitchens like insists that either the song goes off or he leaves. He, not, yeah, he yeah. will not be in the presence because Cat Stevens had endorsed the fatwa against Salman Rushdie. Yes. Uh, he- but I have to say I kind of admire that in a lot of ways. It's so it like he was living by his principle, even though, come on, I mean, it's Cat Stevens. Oh, it's yeah, like, you've got to separate I, the art from the artist, as we say on the re-education. But on the other hand, I really admire that Christopher well, took that I mean, so seriously because it was so... He
2: didn't separate the art from the no, artist, he by the way. Yusuf Islam, I mean, who refused to play this, he's actually playing his music again. Yeah. But that was also told to me as I had this conversation with Salman Rushdie at Christopher's apartment after he played the Rally for Sanity that oh, John yeah. Stewart and you see him Colbert right. it and it was and, and and he told me of this someone she told me of a phone, conversa- phone conversation he had with with John Stewart in which he called him up and chewed him out and saying the rally for sanity includes a man who suborned my death on television and that clip actually you can find that it was very hard to find that before because he denied it for years but right. Christopher kept tabs on all these people yes he he remembered i mean i remember t- saying i was reviewing a particular book at one time, and he's saying, I hope you're not going to give it a good notice because this guy is a real scumbag and went through it to me. <laughs> and I was like, man, this really, you really remember these these slights from from years ago.
0: Yeah, so, no, no, it's true. And so, I mean, let's just, on the personal level, Christopher was, you know, if he liked you, he could be such a generous teacher in a lot of ways. And The most. I remember, you know, leaving his apartment many times after salons and book parties and things like that, but always... In conversation, there were always like three books that I had to read that he would tell me about. And it was, and then then to sort of just be in his world because he knew all of these amazing people. So I remember, you know, right around the time, like right before and right after the Iraq war, he was in pretty well with the Bush White House. And after the, you know, correspondence dinner, the annual correspondence dinner, which I don't go to anymore, but we used to go to back in the day, Mm-hmm. There was a class there was a really famous, wonderful after party at the Hitchens apartment. And you it was a it was like, a it was great as a young journalist to be in that room with people who were running oh, the yeah. government, who were at the height of media and the height of culture. yeah, there was just incredible people like everybody like from Scooter Libby to I don't know who else like we, anyway, I,
2: I mean, I don't think there's any but any other writer I can think of that could. Christopher Buckley was another you, one who was often there. Yeah, who could introduce you to Paul Wolfowitz and James Franco on the same yeah, night? Yeah, right. That's that's <laughs> what I'm talking exactly. So, that's the yeah yeah. That's I think I met Tom Cruise. I met uh, so I met Sean it, Penn yeah.
0: with, with with Christopher yeah, We're in San Francisco once, and, and Gavin Newsom, literally the same yeah. night. So that's anyway. It's that was something that was really, but even if it was just a kind of like regular afternoon and you're in the neighborhood and you sort sure. of stop by, he was always so generous with his time. And one of the reasons I think is because he—he he was just one of those. There's, I, I, I'm certainly not like this. I, I know you're not like this. I write for a living, and it, it's still a painful process. But for Christopher, yeah. he—the only
2: thing I hated him for was being so good at writing. He was not—he so was so good and so fast.
0: <laughs> there were times when he would leave a dinner party. I don't know if you've ever seen this. Leave a dinner party for like 20 minutes, um, and then he would, and they would come yes. back and say, "What?" So I just had to dash off my column for the mirror like. Oh, I, oh no,
2: I the, the 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 best version of this, you were actually there this evening yeah. was the election of Barack Obama. Right. And at his apartment, and he was, he left. It was the first night he had got he gotten back together with Peter, his brother. And you had left he had left to go do a BBC television hit, came back, drank about 17 scotches. We were watching this. That was the time when when Joe Biden walked on stage and Christopher muttered to himself, oh, here comes the great commuter <laughs> and, and then walked out, and then walked out and then went and wrote it, wrote a, 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 column, I believe for a British tabloid, not the daily, it wasn't the sun. It was yeah, the, the mirror. Other one, the, the daily mirror, yeah, yeah. the daily was, mirror. Was, he was, mirror, he wrote, a, mirror, wrote yeah. a column in about 15 minutes for the daily mirror. And I was like, that was, I envied that. But the thing about Christopher is he, he would write for anyone. Oh yeah. he would. You know, the weekly standard asked him to write, he'd write for the weekly standard if any, any you know, you know, some some sort of Marxist publication asking if the if the price is right, he'd write for. So but yeah, I mean the generosity of Christopher is the reason that he looms so large. And look, I've known a lot of writers. Yeah. I've known a lot of people that I respect. I've known a lot of people who have kind of changed the way that I view the world in subtle ways. There is nothing even close to the relationship that I had and the respect that I desperately wanted from Christopher Hitchens, and when he died, which is absolutely stunning to think it was eleven years I ago. I know, and it was that's why I wanted week. to do it now
0: because we just yeah, missed the anniversary it's, it's of twenty December fifteenth. Yeah,
2: yeah, absolutely stunning. That that it actually ruined me. I mean, I had a really hard time. It was really I had a really time. hard yeah. time, and you can't. You feel bad saying that because there's you know family members, people, all of my know and I love dearly, who you know you can't. There's no competition in that way. So you feel bad in saying that I, I I was absolutely destroyed by it. But I truly was. I truly was. I mean I've I could go chapter and verse the you know the weeks after that and I was uh, on my way um supposed to be on my way to to see him too. I remember yeah. And I was told that you know I think things are going to be be better and that that unfortunately didn't happen. So it, it, it's I'm sorry we're all over the place in this but it's just really hard to kind of channel your thoughts about somebody who looms so large yes. in your life. And and I'll say this one final thing about that on a personal level, is that, you know, my father died around the same time. Mm. I mean, within six months or something. And I remember Christopher asking me constantly about how my father was feeling because he was he was very sick. And it was he was sick at the same time, too. And it was, it, you know, and this is not really an overstatement for me, is that it was somebody who acted like a father in a way to yeah. me. I, you know, went with him, went to him with all my issues. I remember talking to him one time after he went to a, did a book signing or something. We took a car home together. And me talking about relationship problems with him. I mean, there was beyond just talking about Anthony Pohl and the Dance the Music of Time series and P.G. Woodhouse and things like that. It really was a relationship that I didn't have with my own father because my own father was fantastic and it's I couldn't have asked for anything more. But he was a different kind of person. And you're supposed to as a child. You kind of... You know, your parents could be into sports and you're not, or your parents are into literature and you become an athlete or whatever it might be. There's going to be, you're going to go out on your own. There's going to be things that your parents just don't understand. So when you find somebody that is the same age as your father, like Mm -hmm. legitimately the same age as my father, he died at the same age too, at 62. And, you know, who could talk to you about all these things that you wanted to talk about. And every time you had, I don't know if this is right I could go to christopher and right. you oftentimes have my feelings hurt by the way because he would say that's absolutely ridiculous and i would feel very sensitive about it and say well no 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 and argue and you Used argue, to say,
0: argue. so quite a gap in your knowledge or like quite a gap <laughs> you used to say that to me like i was like really you know i, I didn't know yeah, like yeah. about the bloomsbury group and i needed to go back yeah, and like, yeah, re- yeah. i was like okay He's like really want to talk about traders, and he like, told me
2: I, I think i told you this not long ago at one time we were sitting together and i brought i, I you, you were mentioned And he said, oh, Eli, I love Eli, fantastic, you know, back, and he had this, told me this great story about you walking around the perimeter of the pool at the house in his, his in-law's house in California, on the phone, heatedly talking about the Iraqi constitution. And he just thought that was the funniest thing, watching you outside yelling about the Iraqi constitution, which I was like
0: that's a moment in time. Like, that's t- a very specific moment two in, in time. the morning or something. It was like it was yeah, a wild yeah, yeah. I remember this, yeah. yeah. And they were so I mean, it was great to be that was great to visit like the Atherton home of his in law Car- Carol Blue's father in this in Stanford. I think he was he was always very really relaxed. He loved to work outside. He always had, you know, the Scotch. So he wrote his books too. Writing, you know, and yeah. he would just sort of it was a it was a more natural kind of place. He got to be friends with Victor Davis Hansen in that in like from that because he's in he's in that same sure. area in the Hoover.
2: Well he was in a the Hoover Fellow. Right. Hoover Institute Fellow. And I don't know if he was one that recommended me. I did the the Hoover I might have been actually. And I said to him, They give you a a cash kind of honorarium and I said, What do I have to do for this? when he told me about it. What do I have to do? I have to produce something. I'll never forget this. He said, he said, darling, it's like finding money in the street. <laughs> you just don't have to do anything. And he was like a, a forever fellow of the Hoover Institute. Yeah, that's right. I, I, which, I did um, that same yeah. thing that you did that,
0: that for journalists yeah. thing. And it was so media, media, media fellow. fellow. Yeah, it was yeah. like, what a, and what a great, anyway, yeah. nice area and everything. I want to talk a little bit about a couple things with Hitchens. I love the story of how he is with Kurdish fighters after the first Gulf War. And he is a, this is when he's still very much a man of the left and he's spending all this time with Kurds and he thinks that George H.W. Bush is a villain. Yeah. And the Kurds are like, no, actually he's a hero and explain why. Yes. And that I think is the beginning of his turn I'm to the right. That. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Like, cause it's interesting in the nineties well, yeah, is I, like I, when I, really we see it. everybody thinks it's Iraq war. It's not, it's, it starts yeah, in the nineties. He'd ever... It is the Iraq War.
2: It's the first Iraq it's War. It's the first Iraq War, right. It's not the <laughs> yeah. same. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's not the exactly first anything.
0: Iraq War. And then I think it's like he, I mean, the other part of this is that he really, I think he was right. He hated the Clintons. He yeah. thought they were both like these just cretins. And I recommend reading No One Left to Lie To, which is his book on oh, the Clintons, no. which is just a little book, but it's devastating.
2: Here's a, 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 something I was thinking about the other day these Twitter file things. Yeah. Come out. And there's one that Lee Fong does about the military-industrial complex and, you know, the, the, the FBI and the CIA right. and all these people trying to intervene. in Twitter. You would imagine that people on the left would be pretty outraged by this. I mean, this is a classic kind of thing that, you know, if the nation broke the story in 2005 about the Bush administration, the Bush-era FBI, meddling we we actually know i
0: mean just we know because the washington post broke a great story in the late 2000s about an effort from the pentagon to basically have it a a vetted vetted guests going on cable news to shape american opinion about the of course it was the same thing and everybody was upset about it it was a great story yeah
2: but the thing about this that i think is interesting is that this happens and i don't see i don't hear a peep from the people you would expect but because because like you know what that's actually stuff that Glenn Greenwald and Matt Taibbi and these bad people actually talk about, so I don't care about that anymore. And there's no principle there. And it's the incredible thing about Christopher is that that is pre- precisely the path that he took in the sense that if you watch the Jeremy Paxman interview and he says, are you still a man of the left? And he says, yeah, absolutely, without a hesitation. And then he talks about this sort of no internationalist left left, but I'm still a man of the left. I still believe in the dialectic and all these things. There's some criticism in there too and I got into it with him on on these geez, But he used to
0: say too. I'm in solidarity with the Iraqi Communist Party. He, yeah, yeah which exactly. I love. by the uh, way yeah. he's like yeah, yeah yeah exactly I'm with the Iraqi Communists. Yeah. Where are you where's your solidarity
2: <laughs> Yeah he's 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 a a Tuda party guy exactly. in Iran. but you know, but this is this is the funny thing about it is that when the Clinton thing happened in the first Iraq war the first Gulf War happened that which Christopher is very very vocally opposed to I mean you can find him on I think Charlie Rose denouncing the the first Gulf War. But then the experience of going to Iraq, which Christopher first went to in the 70s, and remember that Ba'athism was kind of a secular socialist movement at the time. And so therefore it hooked in a lot of left-wing intellectuals, I think Christopher being one of them. And I think he felt a debt in a way to having initially said some positive things about Saddam Hussein in in the 70s. Very quickly understood that that was wrong. And changed his mind on that as one does. And I think the same thing is true. You know, when I said that he talked similarly about Mugabe, Mugabe was a man of the Marxist left too and anti colonialist. And, you know, you, 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 you say maybe I'm on this guy's side and turn out that, that that's not a side that you want to be on. But as this happens, the Clinton thing is another one. The reason I mentioned this Twitter file stuff is you realize that when you have a set of core beliefs, most of the people working in the industry that you do, that you also work in, do not have a set of core beliefs. They have a set of tribal beliefs. They're on a team. And this is the right and the left are both guilty of this. And I think is, you know, people talk about his political journey that wasn't much of a journey. It was very consistent. When people say the, about Glenn Greenwald all the time, the man is very consistent. You know, it's it's the left who has changed, et cetera. It's not, they didn't really change. No one really changes. They were always that way. It's just now that it presented in a different manner in which their guys were doing the bad things, they didn't have a lot to say about it. Christopher was that, you know, I'm nominally, I'm on the left, I write for The Nation. Um, we said nothing about the sexual harassment stuff. I mean, you, this is this is true of, of, you know, all the feminist groups that said, well, you know, it's not that big of a deal. And they've come out later, much, much later, and now say, oh, we feel bad for Monica Lewinsky, et cetera. Christopher was consistent about that all the way through. And he said, these are bad people. This is kind of gangster politics. And... You know, the only criticism that I'll ever level at Christopher, which I did to his face, so I don't feel, is that he he sometimes was a little too enamored with the conspiracy theory. Yeah. And I got into an argument with him about... 2004, um, the, let's
0: say it. 2004.
2: Yes. 2004, well, yeah, yeah, that was Ohio about... Ohio voting I, I, machines. That was, <laughs> yes, that was, he's an election denier. That was a problem. And, you know, I remember one time we were talking about Libya
0: Oh, Carol, he Carol, the, his wife, and Christopher were obsessed with suitcase nukes. Not to say that that's a conspiracy he, theory, but it was a huge, like, that was a like, big topic for many conversations, we would say.
2: Well, nukes were always, I mean, yeah. it's it's funny because people tend to, you know, kind of divorce the context from what happened in Iraq in the, the context of the 80s in particular. I mean, his very close, closest friend was Martin Amos. Martin Amos was obsessed during the 80s about a nuclear exchange. I mean, he wrote countless essays and books about his paranoia about what was going to happen. This world is going to end in a holocaust, a conflagration of Russian and American nuclear missiles. And that is the weapons of mass destruction stuff. That is, you know, the suitcase nuke stuff. I mean, that carries over. This is a, a, a part of that, too. But yeah, no, I mean, Christopher's consistency on this stuff was when other people... You know, he he they loved him when he hated religion, and they were Christians, right? And they were, you know, right wing, Republican, conservative, Bible thumping ones. That's in that great passage that is actually weirdly a footnote. If you came up with this line, it would be the probably the first line in your book. But for Christopher, it's a footnote about you know being down on your weary knees with an expired credit card. You know, do you remember yeah. that line about? visiting male prostitutes. This is what happens to all of these. You know, my my, my, favorite, my favorite was his, his
0: line yeah. about Jerry Falwell that if you gave the man an enema, you could bury him in a matchbox. <laughs> you could bury him in a matchbox, yeah. yeah.
2: Not, by the way, keep, keep, keep in mind, think about any of the writers that you like now, any of the thinkers that you like now have any lines that are memorable. I mean, I can remember 50 yeah. lines of Christopher's that were so funny and inventive and, and wonderful with language. But I think that that's the thing. I think that this is the thing that, that it's the tribal thing is that, we were when you said islamic fascism all of a sudden you have these i was baffled by this magazine's like the nation defending religion defending people of religious not only faith and conviction but extremism because the other side was their enemy right right because you know in and then there was a moment where the racialization started to get to in, into american politics in a very crazy way i mean it's always been racialized but racialized in this crazy way that you know muslims were considered you know, brown and downtrodden and the victims of imperialism, rather than the fact that, you know, a lot of Muslims are white and there's a lot of imperialism in the Muslim world. But this kind of thing was interesting for for Christopher because he was consistent on this stuff and everybody else started kind of peeling off. I don't think... I really actually believe that when he says, you know, you know, the left left me. Well,
0: I, do I mean, that. I think it was a couple other things too because the, he was never... He was never comfortable. He he always opposed the efforts that start, you know, way before this becomes a going concern about nine, after 9-11, which was the efforts to try to kind of gnaw away at the concept of free speech by saying either that speech was a form of violence. He was always consistent on free speech. And over yes. time, like, we can chart it in, you know, when Hollywood makes, you know, that biopic that's like just a, a tribute to Lenny Bruce is like the height of free speech being in the province of the left, the left is defending like Hustler magazine and, you know, Robert Maplethorpe and, you know, all this other stuff. Then the left, you know, over time, whether it's pornography, where you saw the Dworkin arguments, or you start to see these like weird things that like, you know, so we need speech codes to protect other people on campus. That's all happening by the 90s and C- Christopher was always consistent mm-hmm. on the free yeah. speech point. And so I think that yeah. in that respect that that it wasn't just that it was weird that the nation was defending religion, which they historically wouldn't, but the nation was also now in the game of, you know, intersectionality and the kinds of things that are like so prevalent today on the left.
2: Well yeah, I mean that's when that's your job, right? Right. You're a writer. And 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 it's odd to me that more writers don't think about this today. Well that's why is we that that's why we people... need
0: why well, I'm doing the Hitchens episode right now. It's because we need to yeah. the spirit of Hitchens is really it starts in some ways with a really Fierce commitment and understanding of free speech, which is that he used to talk about it wasn't just a matter of, I have the right to say something. It was like, if I'm the only person in the world who is giving voice to a heresy, that's all the more reason to protect that speech because you really need to hear it. You need to hear the other side. He was famously invited by the Vatican to be literally the devil's advocate when they were talking about canonizing Mother Teresa. All of that is because Christopher really believed that it was so important that you needed to have the discourse he would he, well, he was attracted to take. He defended David Irving. He, he wanted to take, I wouldn't call them extreme positions. I would say that he wanted to take unpopular positions that were consistent with his values, and that was usually what drew him to it. It wasn't like he shied away. He wanted to.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think where we've landed on speech is pretty much the opposite of where Christopher landed, right. in the sense that, you know, access to bad information has now been smuggled through this idea of mis- or disinformation, that it must be suppressed because otherwise the plebs will actually know about it. And sorry, I'm getting a little static from my phone. You know, we have to suppress this because otherwise the plebs will know about it. And we can't have that, can we? We need to, to, you know, prevent Alex Jones from being on, on YouTube or Trump being on Twitter. I don't think this is something that Christopher would line up four square behind and say, this is misinformation, disinformation, because you mentioned the David Irving thing. That was a huge hit to his credibility, wrongly. I mean, because he was attacked, I mean, he was accused, and I think he sued, actually, Henry Kissinger on this, of being a Holocaust denier because he defended the right of David Irving to publish his book on Goebbels, which was purchased by St. Martin's Press. They knew David Irving's background because the, I think it was Gordon Craig or one of these great historians of the Third Reich who said he's not only a a fascist historian, but he's a great historian of fascism. And that's become less and less true over time. I mean, David Irving's gone really around the bend and become, you know, obsessed with with anti-Semitism and being just a Jew hater, basically. But he had a relationship with people that allowed him to ferret out documents that nobody else had. Christopher understood that. And if you went to a certain shelf in his apartment that had the Irving book had every other book on on the Holocaust and on the Third Reich, and then a few Holocaust denial books that were there. Because Christopher, when being accused of this, wanted to understand what these people were all about. And he read them and thought they were nonsense. But the access to that information, if we try to curtail that lest people, you know, become Nazis or become Holocaust deniers, because you hold everybody in incredibly low esteem and imagine that they can't actually process information on their own, we see how that works out. We see how it works out in Germany where, you know, Mein Kampf has been banned since 1946, and they have a Nazi problem, and they always have. This, you know, making this stuff illegal has not made Nazis go away in Germany. And it was effectively illegal, by the way, in the Weimar Republic, too. There were basically hate speech statute, statutes. Goebbels was brought up on charges constantly and was in, in the docket in the court, and, you know, that that didn't stop things either. So I think that Christopher's ideas about that were... Definitely came from the Rushdie affair. Yeah, the Rushdie affair, you know, shaped those ideas and realized in his mind the importance of them. But then, when it became a thing of that I Chris hated religion, let's see in the most sort of basic and boring way to put it. I don't think that's an accurate way of putting it. but it, everything was equal in the sense that, you know, he didn't like the Torah. He didn't like the Quran, He didn't like the Bible and thought they were all works of man-made works of fiction. And to say one of those things became problematic. Just well, wonder. I mean,
0: I, I I should say I have my criticisms of him. I I think that his sure critique of religion, God is not great, which is a great book. Everybody should read. Mm-hmm. But he also doesn't approve.
2: Which Rusty said was one word too long. The title, <laughs> God is not. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah.
0: That the there was a kind of I guess you'd say I don't think he he appreciates because my parents both were religious that you know I know people in my life who were very religious who not very but like who appreciate religion that you can have you know paradox in your mind that you don't have to be a like kind of holy book literalist and i think that was a big flaw of the book which is that he he his he he only could understand religion through the lens of somebody who knew the books as well as he did because he read it all but then also had to take them literally because it, and it was like well, there's a lot of people who have a different relationship with it, and they, they are in religion for reasons that are not necessarily rational or mm-hmm. empirical.
2: I always found that people focused on the wrong thing when you put them in this kind of group of the, yeah. the four horsemen, right, of Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, Sam Harrison, and Christopher, which is proving the existence or non-existence of God versus, I think, what Christopher more interested in which was proving the kind of malignant influence of people who believed in God. And, you know, the famous joke, which I always thought was hilarious, not a joke, but it's a story where Christopher was talking to, I was like, Dennis Prager, I believe? Oh, yeah. And and, and he said to him, Christopher, if you're walking oh, I in a park at, at night and it's dark out, and there's someone close falling behind you, would you prefer to find out that person was religious or that they were not religious? And Christopher was like, Depends on what religion. <laughs> Very funny. Uh, but, you know, that idea, like, I mean, in, you know, those final years of his life, and he's asked about this constantly because you talk about God and you talk about religious belief, and you're dying and people are going to confront you with that all the time. Well, what? Are you not going to be the foxhole atheist? What about Pascal's Wager? Which, you know, he always had a great, a great response to, if, you know, Pascal's Wager being that, you know, why not just... Right. Go to the side of God because you know, what can you lose? I mean, Christopher's response to the right one is that if if God is all knowing and all seeing I think he knows that you're splitting the difference yeah. here. <laughs> I think he knows that you're <laughs> trying to sneak one by the goalie. But no, I think that, that, that uh, you know he did say things like, look, in and, and in that interview with Paxman, which I've listened I listened to not too long ago, it came up my in, uh, my YouTube feed where he says, you know, I, I don't I don't I have seen no evidence for this, but you know, I'm not scared of death, because I'll be no more. And if I am, I like surprises." And that's right, right? I mean, he, he, you know, I mm-hmm. like surprises. Maybe maybe that would happen. But as far as I know, and everything that's available to me, there's no evidence. This, but it was more the fanaticism that, that stoked religious people yeah. into conflict and into death cults and into, you know, it deciding decisions of politics and in life and overwhelming the rational part of your brain that's, I think, would offend well, him. But
0: weeks. I don't have a problem with that. My problem is that I don't think that Hitchens could envision or allow for the fact that there are plenty of people who consider themselves religious and got a lot out of being in a religion and religious ritual that weren't by no means fanatics and could oh, for understand sure. that. For sure, and he,
2: and he debated those people too. And I just met somebody yeah, yeah. recently, a rabbi, who debated him, and we spent the better part of a dinner trading stories about about Christopher and him almost. I wouldn't say teary-eyed, but but really emotional about how much he missed them. Oh yeah, and this is a a man who's a conservative conservative rabbi, and you know, like I, I, it wasn't never treated with disrespect, in the sense of that's how people view Dawkins. That's why Dawkins is kind of hated, and kind of considered a bit of an asshole about it. Whereas Christopher was not for sure. Well, the had thing had about Christopher
0: was he was such, his mind was so vast that he he really did read and understand the critical texts so mm-hmm. he could debate religious people on their own kind of home turf and you know, there's very few you, seculars who i think have that no capability.
2: do you know that's that's true that to to i i i never once had a conversation with him about religion oh not once. i did not a single time
0: oh I, i'm sure I, I mean you i you, told him could, i said yeah. I, I don't know, you know i have a problem with what you say about the, yeah, yeah. about I mean, god he, or whatever even though i myself am fairly agnostic and i'm very secular he goes, oh, so you so you have a problem with what I say about the Lord. And because and I say yes, and he says, well, mm. then you're a serf, <laughs> 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 which I love anyway. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I never
2: had those conversations yeah. because for me, the interest was to debate debate of conversations. I mean, a few of them developed into late night drinking debates, one in particular on Lenin and John uh, or Vladimir. the excuses he made for Lenin. Yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, pr- probably at some point both. But Vladimir, I mean, we, you know, I'd, I'd prefer to have conversations with him about Dylan. Yeah. Which was always fun. Well, I Dylan mean, was his was favorite. There was so much. Yeah. He, Yeah, there was so much. I mean, yes, I think it was Boots of Spanish Leather. It was his favorite.
0: He, yes. Played at his And yeah, he was so happy when memorial. a pristine recording of it, I remember. I want to end on, I mean, we shouldn't speculate because he's obviously not here, but you hear a lot about what would Christopher have done in 2016? What would he have yeah. done in 2016? And... I do not think he would have supported Trump, but I also don't oh think God. he would have supported Hillary Clinton. Oh my God, no. He no, hated no. he no. hated Hillary Clinton. He hated the people around Hillary yes. Clinton. He had a famous calling yeah. out with Sidney Blumenthal, who he was happy to testify in front of Congress about how he was blackening the name of Monica Lewinsky in the 1990s. He played a sort of bit role in that scandal, if you remember. And I don't know. I think he would have come down to this position of being a neither-Trumper. I think he, he would have... Had equal Um, contempt for both parties in that election.
2: Yeah, I mean, it depends on those intervening years. Yeah. What, you know, the foreign policy ideas. I mean, Christopher was an internationalist, a liberal internationalist. He cared about foreign conflict more than, I mean, I talked to him, you know, a couple times about sort of like welfare policy or something, where he, he said a very funny line to me that, uh, that Walmart has done more for community organizing than Barack Obama, uh, which is a funny joke. But yeah, that stuff didn't really interest him as much. So you would have to look at, at what happened in Libya, particularly Syria, because I remember at the beginning, I remember him saying to me at the beginning of the, of the Arab Spring that this is happening in the wrong country. That was his concern. He wanted it to spread to the countries that really needed it more than a place like Tunisia. Right. I mean, he was talking about places like Syria, and then look what happens in Syria. But that would have been the interesting thing, because that, of course, you know, informs everything after. There's, remember that Christopher supported George W. Bush twice, and constantly made fun of George W. Bush for the way he spoke, right? Uh, for the way he thought about things. And he was like, this is the vehicle to which to, that one takes to to this end, and that end being in his mind the liberation of Iraq and the end of Saddam Hussein. So that you know you you hit your wagon there, but you know to to drown in cliches you hit your wagon there. The one the one thing that I think that he could not countenance, and he made fun of Trump in the past, is that you look at the piece that he wrote right not long before he died, but a year or two before he died about the Tea Party, and that's really where you understand how he would. Think about these people. I don't think that you know he would, Chris would be able to go and write something generous about a Mike Flynn revival tent meeting, right? You know, which is all snake handling nonsense. Well, he would have loved then, Mike
0: Flynn when he was the you know the running intelligence for the U.S. military and disrupting terror networks. Sure, in fact, yeah, yeah, of I'm, course. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. Probably, he maybe knew Mike Flynn in those years when he was honing America's you know deadly drone strikes and. And mm-hmm. SEAL teams to go after terror kingpins, but the Mike Flynn that has emerged, particularly yeah. you know during the Trump years when he was you know after he was investigated unfairly in my view, and now what he is now is an election denier and kind of aligning himself with a lot of just Real deplorable stuff, now. he would not have liked that for sure. No. And I think he no, would have. I, mean, I think also, was. Yeah. A, he knew enough about. I don't know. I would hope. I don't I don't think he would have made the mistake that Tim Snyder and Ann Applebaum and others have made that compared Trump to the European fascists. However, he probably would have seen correctly that Trump is in the tradition of Joe McCarthy, Huey Long, Father Coughlin and American kind of populist demagogues, which is ugly enough. And I think he would have opposed that on principle. I think he probably would have sniffed it early with Trump. Yeah. And yeah, I mean I, I I think he would have also yeah. had no tolerance for what the Democrats have become in resistance to Trump. Of course. Yeah.
2: yeah. I, and I think that you you can only do this stuff in this kind of speculation and make it worthwhile in any way by referring to things that he has yes, previously I written. Agree. I think that I think that the piece that he wrote of the Tea Party is pretty instructive and I recommend that people go back and read it. It was in Vanity Fair, I think in 2010. And that really so there's two things I would say about this. That's number one. Number two, he also kind of saw what was coming with identity politics Yeah, and really disliked it. There is an essay that is completely forgotten about, and I've talked about it on The Fifth Column, my own podcast that I do with two other chaps, and you've been on a number of times, is an essay that he wrote in a book that I also wrote an essay in, and uh, which he made fun of me for for, because I got half or a quarter of the money that he got. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, but you're Christopher Hitchens and I'm nobody. And it was called an Adam Bellow book uh, called New Threats to Freedom. And in that book, everybody chose a threat to freedom. And I chose anti-capitalism, which I saw as a movement that was getting gaining strength at the time. And I think I was proven right in a way about that. And Christopher chose multiculturalism. The idea, the, the sort of ideology of multiculturalism, completely forgotten about it. So no one has ever collected it. I don't think anyone's ever referenced it. I don't even think it's online. But you can find it. And that was the stuff. And I remember him also saying, you know, anybody who introduces their question after you've given a speech and a question and answer period was saying, as a, you know, something, something, <laughs> he's, you know, he said, stop listening, just turn it off. It's it's not going to be worthwhile. So that stuff, in on one hand, is is what you kind of know just because of, you know, his prescience and that, and seeing all that stuff happen. It's very interesting to go back and and look at that stuff. But he was not. He's not. You know, was never somebody who cared about intellectual fashion or would bow to that. Whereas I think his closest friend, Martin is, who Christopher, you know, would make jokes about to me about his politics, has done. You know, he gave an interview to the New York Times magazine and he's like, said something like, what are you reading now? And like, you know, Ibram X. Kendi or oh, something. Jesus. That's not something Christopher would ever do. I, that just it just doesn't strike me. But as far as like, you know, one of the things that was dominant... In one of the reasons that people think, and I think they're right about this, that Bill Crystal, that, you know, Ann Applebaum, you mentioned a lot of the never Trumpers, a lot of the weekly standard types became never Trumpers was because of the foreign policy stuff. And I think Christopher would have been similar in that, that the foreign policy stuff, the the offense is not so much the knuckle-dragging way of political presentation, which is what you get for Trump hmm. from Trump, because he's He's, you know, backwards. And, you know, he could accept that, as you saw with George W. Bush, with, to, a certain, to a certain degree. It's more than anything the fact that a lack of intellectual curiosity about the world, which allows you just to say, we need to retreat from it and have no influence in it. I mean, I think Christopher Sony believed in American exceptionalism. He said very famously he thought he was born in the wrong country. And now would be you were born in the wrong gender, but Christopher was born in the wrong country. He was, he was an, an Anglo-American first. He very happily, very excitedly became an American citizen. And the ceremony that was, that was Michael Cheridoff that did it for him, the head of hom- Homeland Security at the time. And, you know, somebody who, you know, really believed in American exceptionalism and liberal internationalism. And it becomes, I think he'd be somebody that would be, that would be on Biden's side right now when it came to Ukraine. I just think that that is. I think very I think consistent. he would
0: clearly be on Biden's side when it came to Ukraine, but I think he yeah. would be horrified by the efforts of congressional Democrats like Adam Schiff to pressure social media companies to yeah, censor yeah, more and more misinformation. I think he would see right through that, or like the yeah, Biden administration is not something. Yeah. The Biden administration's I disinformation governance board. News. He would have yeah. had a field day just puncturing that, and I think he yeah. would have been horrified about. What became of Russiagate. I think he probably would have, because you're right, he did have a little bit of a weakness at times for conspiracy theories. He probably would have been very, very persuaded by some of the smoke, as I think all of us were in 2016, you know, who follow it. I was certainly at times, but then to like learn that it was, you know, a Clinton dirty trick confirming another prior of his, you know what I mean? It would be, I would love to, I I miss him for so many reasons, but one of the reasons is because I think that there are, a lot of these tensions that would have made yeah it made him such a joy to read in, you know, we, we miss him.
2: F- for sure. I will say one final thing in this is that, is that the one thing that motivates me, and I know this to be true, there's no way I can prove it, but I know it to be true, is that the word misinformation would make Christopher Hitchens' skin crawl. Oh, my God. It would be like Primarily Islamophobic.
0: That, like, he hated Islamophobic, and he would... He, yes. Yeah, and he would...
2: Because the purpose of what we do as journalists is to counter bad information with good information. That's our job. It's not to prevent the information from coming out in the first place. It's to give it that sunlight and then to disinfect it with our own ideas
0: and with our own writing. He would have hated that. I'm loath to ask, but is there anybody right now who comes close to Hitchens in (laughs) terms of the breadth of knowledge, the, the style, the talent? I don't think there is.
2: No. Not, no. I don't think so. No, not even close. I can't even, I mean, let, always remember that Christopher's, one of his biggest strengths was that he was one of the most fluid, readable, convincing, enjoyable literary critics yes. that existed in in my lifetime. And, you know, contemporaneous with me reading about stuff like this. And that's why The Atlantic hired him, was not to write about Iraq and, you know, and North Korea and Iran. Which I'm sure he did probably on un- before them at one point, but it was mostly literary criticism. And his interest, of course, was in mostly British, a little bit of American, but mostly British literature, which he had an unbelievable knowledge of and could quote things. I mean, ask him to quote Philip Larkin poems, and he can do them top to bottom, yeah, and without even without even blinking after seven drinks. So that was always deeply impressive. I, I, can't, I can't think of anyone. Well, no the fact that cat- he was
0: that you have somebody who was a world-class and one of the great literary cr- critics of his era, but also one of the great news columnists and also somebody who wrote penetrating books that will endure, whether it's God is not great. Yes. His memoir is fantastic. I love Letters to a oh, young, young Contrarian. And also somebody who wrote really important essays that were like you know he he wrote he wrote the the great essay before the reprint of Thomas Paine's Common Sense sure he sure. wrote civilization is discontent the opening essay I mean there's a lot of that that we said. it's it's hard to kind of get your head around how prolific he was and how
2: I mean I have a Rebecca West book that he wrote the introduction oh, wow. to the yeah. falcon the 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 one about the balkans and you know you find this stuff here and there and it's like a the a prolific, prolific writer and everything was pretty good. I mean, it's kind of like, I, I'll say that he's kind of like the Beatles in the sense that of, of there's anything that you think the Beatles is mediocre is still better than most anybody else recording at the period. It's like, it's not, for them, it's okay, but there's nothing that you say, oh, I can't listen to that. I mean, there's maybe one song or two. I don't like Savoy Truffle, but beyond that, I think it's really I think it's all pretty. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's terrible. Trans tangerine, um, Yeah, no, it's, <laughs> it's 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 everything about the '60s that sucks in one song. But you know, he had that ability to to make everything thing and funny and and readable, and that is the thing. It's like when you I thought about this the other day when I was listening to this is a Beatles thing when I was listening to the. Reissue of Revolver that has all these B sides on it that that Giles Martin did. There is a version of Rain, oh, the Beatles song Rain, which is never on a record. It was not, not on any of the records. It was a single and kind of forgotten. B side to Paperback if I, Writer, I,
0: if I'm not mistaken. Yes, it was B
2: side to Paper. It's a B side of a single that's also not on a record. And I was thinking about that and saying, "Good, if I ever wrote that song, I would be done. That would be it. If that'd be the best song. I, I would be like, I'd be happy." But to, to to them, to McCartneys, it's a B-side of a song that's not on a record that will never be really listened to by anyone, and that is what I get from reading Christopher, is the fact that the best lines are sometimes, you know, lurking in footnotes, like the one I mentioned about yeah. the 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 credit card and the weary knees, and it's, look that one up on H-22. But if I had that, that'd be, in, be the front of, front of the piece. Because there's a man—a man of just insane talents—as a writer, as a thinker, as a conversationalist, and more than anything, as a debater. Oh, you don't want to go up against him. We
0: should just really briefly say, and I'll probably put this in the intro. Go look up Mm -hmm. his debate with George Galloway in the height of the Iraq War controversy. Yes, it's a hostile crowd, and some of our friends, like we're there, we, our group, we we became like part of a group of friends who. Kind of were in and around Hitch, right? I mean, I would. Yeah, yeah. And some of our friends were at that debate. I remember, and in yes. the beginning Where of Michael it, Michael Weiss he, was there. Yeah. He he printed out. It was like an old Oxford Union thing. He printed out like a a, a sheet with all these quotations from Galloway. Yeah, yeah. Remember that were taken from like when he visited Damascus. With Michael Weiss handed them. Michael out, Weiss yeah. and like him, they handed it out, and it was like yeah. you know, this is the man that you're gonna. And like it was so. He's a pamphleteer till the end. It's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Oh, yeah. we missed. And by him. the way,
2: I just saw I just saw George Galloway on on his own internet show uh, praising Tucker Carlson for his JFK conspiracies. I'm not joking. Really? You can look this up. Yeah. Is it, so um, the world is. Is it like is, who's is, paying for
0: it now? It's not Iranian press TV anymore. Is it like is it back to RT? Is
2: it like Al Qaeda's
0: television brand? Like be, <laughs> it
2: might be Al Manar. Yeah, Al Manar, right. Lebanon. <laughs> it's we have the turkmenistan Broadcasting Corporation. <laughs> So, yeah, yeah, it's something bad. Yeah, but, exactly.
0: Uh, <laughs> oh, Michael, what a joy. We miss him. What a joy. Um, you know, we'll have you on soon enough again. So, I got? We got to do like a Beatles episode.
2: We got to do, the music episodes are great. We did one that people should go back and listen to. I've gotten a lot of feedback on oh, it. Because, it was, it was a uh, classic. It was, so it was one of our fun. best. And,
0: yeah, the so. and you know, we it just came out today. Well, this will be out later, but go back and listen to the Christmas song monologue only. I think you'll like that.
2: Oh, wow. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. I always listen, Elon. I appreciate
0: always it. Did. I always listen to the fifth column. <laughs> All right. Thanks again, Michael. Right, this man. was great.
2: Great. Right. Talk, Talk to I you see. soon.